Welcome to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. Today, oh wait, am I, how am I supposed to start it? Am I supposed to say? I'm Alex and I'm uh, here with. That's right. That's right. I must restart. <clears throat> Don't, cut. Don't cut it, Caleb. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Appalachian <laughs> Anglican. I'm Alex. I'm here with Adam and I'm Daryl. So today uh, we're going to call Caleb out because he's not here today. So I'm going to be your uh, spokesman for the day. So I apologize. You're the MC. Yes, I'm going to be. I, you got, what, you I, got any music to play? Like you got a cool bumper song or something? I do, like, but it's not with me. I don't even know. What does MC stand for? Is that like the letters MC or is it like E-M-C-E-E? Do we know that? Because I've seen it spelled both ways. I've always understood it as like a master of puppets. Okay. I thought it was like a motorcycle <laughs> club, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> so uh, I don't think that's going to be a segue into no? what we're going to talk about, but I'm going to try. That's not related. Okay. I'm going to try. So... We're going to talk about the holy orders as they relate to the modern ideas around the fivefold ministry. I've had a, a lot of friends ask me if we believe in the fivefold ministry. What's that? Well, I'm like, well, actually, I, I probably could talk about that, but what is that, Alex? It's uh, it's in the scriptures. So I said yes, like the Trinity. Yeah. Well, the 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 word Trinity is not in the scriptures, but the fivefold ministry of so fivefold ministries in the scriptures. Yeah, it is like that. Well, not the word, like the but, word trinities. No, not 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 the word fivefold ministry, but the ministry of five folds are in there, right? A little bit more directly, yeah. Then, I mean, I wouldn't say then the Trinity, but you know, I mean, it lays out the, it, the they're literally four, stated the, the fourfold ministry. Yeah, whatever, whatever it is. Greek prepositions are important. It is, and that's why I got a C in Greek. So got it. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm Hebrew. I'm the Hebrew man. You know, we're probably going to do an episode on the rapture in the fall, guys. And you realize that the rapture is built around the King James's use of prepositions. That's not based upon Greek prepositions. Anyway, so uh, talking about prepositions in Ephesians 4 with the five or fourfold ministry. What are they, Alex? What, what is the fivefold ministry? Preaching, teaching, right? Am I right? No. No? What, hold on. What, <laughs> no, what is it? Oh, let's go here. That's what was in my mind. That's not, that's not it. <laughs> what is the fivefold ministry then? How about that, Adam? You, you know what they are? Pastor, teacher. Evangelist, <laughs> apostle. That's four. Did I say five? I lost count. Those aren't in order either, by the way. No, they're not. If you're, I mean, looking, that's what I was getting in at. In Ephesians four, uh, the scripture Paul takes uh, Psalm sixty-eight and inverts it. So in Psalm sixty-eight, when the Lord ascends on high, He receives gifts from men. When Paul quotes that in Ephesians four, he says He gave gifts to men. So instead of receiving gifts at the ascension, He's giving gifts out at the ascension. So often these are referred to. Often they are referred to as ascension gifts. Things that Jesus gave the church when he was ascending. And he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. That's the one I missed. Some to be evangelists. Prophet. Yeah. And some to be pastors and teachers. So that's the distinction between the four and the five. Gotcha. So does he mention five? Yes. But he doesn't use a preposition, a phrase to include, to, to make it five distinctions, but if four distinctions and the last one, pastor and teacher being qualified as the same thing. And so you have some interpreters who will say, no, there's only four, and some will say there's five. But there's five gifts, which was, I was trying to say. I got you. I was getting it out. It was just, you, your, your look on your face messed me up, because I was oh. singing out of order. Oh. So, uh, we learned Sunday, where you, you told me Sunday that words matter. <laughs> I had a little bit of trouble of getting some words out on Sunday morning, but hey, that's that's for... We're all in development, man. <laughs> we're, all, we're all in the shaping process. It's okay. Yes. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about the, the fivefold ministry the idea of that and what it's developed into now. And, and we're going to talk about holy orders, which we, you know, deacon, priest, and bishop. And how, how, how are we going to correlate those two? What is this podcast going to be about? Well, I appreciate the, the question. Well, I think the other 
possibility, Alex, is can they be correlated with each other? Oh, and this is this brings up the first point. Bishop Ackerman made this comment when he when he was on with us a couple weeks ago, and I remember we talked about this principle. We've talked about it on the regular throughout our our episodes, but and this is the, this is the principle here: new ideas, new theological ideas, like the fivefold ministry. Now, automatically, someone is saying. That's not new. That's right there in the pages of Ephesians. Well, we're going to talk about the novel understanding of that as it as it's developed in, say, the past literally 50 years, and in some cases, 30 years. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the burden of proof is never upon what has existed. The burden of proof is never upon what has existed. The burden of proof is always what is always upon what is new, what's novel. So when we go to compare any doctrine to another doctrine, we want to look at when, whatever, whatever the particular doctrines are that you're contrasting, when did each one develop and how did they develop? So when we're talking about the, the, three, the three-tiered ministry, the three, three orders of ministry of bishop, priest, and deacon, those were established by the Lord and the apostles in the pages of the New Testament. And that is the structured organization of the church amongst the disciples of the apostles. Clement, Ignatius, the Didache talks about them all the way through. So there's never, in all the stuff we've talked about, there's you know dispute over infant baptism, right? I mean, it's uh, Cyprian in 250. The, they are debating infant baptism. The debate is, do you baptize the baby on the first day or the eighth day? They don't bat- debate whether you should. That doesn't exist. But whether you should on the first or eighth day, because the new covenant's better than the old. And if the old covenant was eight days, then surely you would do it on the first day because we have a new covenant. So there's that debate. We mentioned the Trinity already in passing. There's the debate on the Trinity. How do we understand the language of, of God, of, of his nature and his person, right? So there's debate on the Trinity. There's debate upon the number of sacraments through Christian history. There is no debate on holy orders. There's really none. There's no debate on bishops, priests, and deacons. It is the received form, and it is hands down the universal practice of the church up until the latter portion of the 1500s. I say the middle of 1500s. There's no change. East and West, not even just East and West, go with the Nestorians, go with the Coptics, go go with all of the, the developments of Christian uh, practice and life with the church outside of the Roman Empire. There's no, there's no difference here. Right. The suborders change, and the suborders would be things like acolyte, porter, like the door guard, uh, exorcist, reader, lay catechists, to use a, a more contemporary term, uh, deaconess. There's a few others. So that you have variation amongst those, those orders, the suborders as they were, because they were, they were offices, if you want, we want to use that terminology. They were, speci- they were designated functions in the church that either a bishop or a priest, depending upon what it was, set the person aside, set them apart through the laying on of hands to fulfill that role. But it was never reckoned of the caliber of holy orders. The fivefold ministry, we're just going to use fivefold because that's, that's the predominant understanding of most contemporary neo-charismatics. The fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, apist, as it's uh, called by some, instead of shepherd, it's, or instead of pastor, it's shepherd, so you get apist. That has become increasingly popular since the 1990s. What? Yes, literally since the 1990s. 
you had a rise of what were considered evangelists because in the in the 1800s this is really when you start to see the idea of an evangelist coming back through guys like Charles Finney because a lot of people they believe the evangelists were gone cessationism as it came out of the mainline churches of the reformation really did a number on just a lot of things that the holy spirit does on the regular right there's just a lot lot of changes so when you you start to look at what's happening since the 1800s you end up with the, what they call the restoration, so the restoration of the, the evangelist's office. And you've really got to figure out what in the world does that mean. So if we live in Christendom, guess what everybody probably thinks they are? Christian. Christian. And why would they think they're Christians? Well, largely, why would they think they're Christians? Not just because they're in that kind of culture, but what, what's, what have they probably received? Communion? No. Baptism? Baptism. Gotcha. They're probably baptized. Yeah. And so when you end up looking at guys like uh, Wesley and Whitfield, even though that's the 1700s, and then, you know, the, the Second Great Awakening in the United States, roughly 100 years later or so, and you talk about evangelists, you're talking about people who are calling Christians to a more complete conversion. Own what was given to you sacramentally. When you start coming going coming into modern history, you get into the 1900s, middle of the 1900s with the rise of the evangelists and their tent meetings, you saw a resurgency of, of words like prophet. So 1960s, 70s is real big emphasis on prophets. So people who were predicting the future or they were through their, through their gifts of words of knowledge and words of um, wisdom, you know, they would disclose people's hearts and, and predict things. Part of the challenge with anybody who's been in the move, those kinds of movements for a long time, is you see how often they're wrong. Uh, that's another thing to get into. But I mean, I, I guess that's a, but that is a good question to bring up when you're talking about prophets in the New Covenant sense. Because in the Old Testament, they couldn't be wrong one time. You just dismiss them. In the New Testament, how many times can you be wrong? And what constitutes prophecy in the New Testament? That's a different discussion. I would recommend to those who've never read it, Wayne Grudem's book on prophecy in the New Testament and today. It's, it's a pretty good, and it's pretty even on the road, because Wayne's a, a Presbyterian. So for those who think that it's not on, on a scholarly level, he does write a, a pretty good scholarly write-up in the book on the gift of prophecy. I know that some folks would disagree with his conclusions on some things, and I don't agree with everything that's in the book. But like I said, I think it's one of the more thorough treatments on a scholarly level of this particular charism. So you get the prophets and the, and the folks that are doing these prophetic uh, deeds. And there's a lot of good that's happening, too. I don't want to sound like I'm just disparaging the whole thing. Well, then you come into the 80s and the 90s, and that's when you start to see people who call themselves apostles and the rise of what's considered the apostolic ministry. And now, I mean, that stuff was still being debated when I was in Bible college 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. That stuff was a huge debate. And it's kind of settled as the, as the way people understand ministry in, the, in certain Pentecostal and charismatic contexts, largely through the work of guys like Alan Hirsch, and some of them have really pressed this, this language. And what is an apostle in those circles? What do they mean by that? Well, they, none of them mean like the Twelve. What they mean is somebody whom the Holy Spirit has raised up. Well, you know what? Hold on. i got to stop for a second. This is not consensus amongst the neo-pentecostal and the neo-charismatic groups because some of them use apostle to mean missionary some of them use apostle like they've gone to another culture some of them use apostle to mean the holy spirit really anointed this person for influence and leadership in the church and in the culture so some use it like that 
and where it's more or less an honorary title. And then there are others that use it to talk about those who have some kind of oversight over their network of churches that they started and the group of guys that, that are with them in that. So you get some variation in there. And then depending upon how charismatic that particular subset is, they will then emphasize particular signs and wonders, whether it's miracles or healings or exorcisms or something to that effect, to say this is the evidence that this person is an apostle. That paradigm does not exist in church history until 50 years ago. It doesn't exist. Because you have to remember that Christians never believed in more than one church. And this goes back to the question you had, are these things compatible? And so we need to touch on that that here for a moment. Because in the early church, let's, let's, let's all get in our DeLorean outside. You guys ready? We're going to strap in. We're going to hit 88 miles an hour. And our flux capacitor is ready to go. And we're going to go back to the Antioch. Right. We're going to go back to Antioch. After Jerusalem fell, okay. right? So who's our bishop? Peter. No. That far back? After Jerusalem fell. After Jerusalem fell. Yeah. I don't know the name. Peter's the first, but who's, right. who, who's after him? Evodius. I don't have oh, these memorized. Oh, who's yeah, next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have these memorized. Who's next? He's there 40 years. He wrote seven letters. I've already mentioned him once. Ignatius. Ignatius, I knew that. See, Ignatius of Antioch. Yeah, that makes sense. That's right. why. That yes. makes sense. Okay. I'm sorry. Right. He's made the bishop there right around 60, between 67 and 69 AD. So before Jerusalem falls in 70. And he's the bishop there for 40 years. All right, so it's the year 85, 90 AD. Okay, John's still alive. Okay. We're in Antioch. Let's go start a church. Do you think that would really happen? No. Could you go start a church if there's already a bishop there? No. Not with, especially without like just our own. No. I feel like it's more one of those, I'll let you know. <laughs> like when I need that, I'll come to you. Don't come to and me. If, and if, let's say we walked up to, to the venerable Ignatius and we said to him, excuse me, the Holy Spirit's told us to go over to this, pi- this side of, of the city and we're supposed to start a church there. What do you think he's going to say? The Holy Spirit didn't tell me that. That's something comparable to that is exactly what he's going to say. Because when he does write his seven letters, I believe it's it's either to the Trallians or the Magnesians, I think. He's writing to them and he says, uh, remember when God spoke through, he said, I spoke with God's ringing voice. Is kind of how he says it. He says the Holy Spirit moved him to, to prophesy. The Holy Spirit moved him to say to that church, obey your bishop. And anything that's done without the bishop is in violation of the gospel. Right, Ignatius says this kind of stuff. He's discipled by Peter and Paul and Barnabas, and John's still well. By one hundred seven, John's already gone, but he's like they—they are—they're contemporaries in a lot of ways for a long time. So, the bishop, priest, and deacon model that the apostles set up in the New Testament is the model of church organization up until a few decades ago, and that really has to—you have to—you have to step back for a second and say. Are these compatible? How do I understand this? Because there are many Christians, especially in the United States and in portions of Latin America and a couple other spots around the world where their entire paradigm of the church is a fivefold ministry model that they, and, and it was through that model that they heard the gospel about Jesus dying for their sins and believed it. And when they start to study Christian history, they suddenly realize this has not been what's always done. This isn't, hasn't, this has not always been. This, this is something else that came, that, that was generated in history. So that takes you to another question. And it's this, is it the Lord? 
And that kind of goes into the whole stuff we've talked about in the past about the difference between the priests in the Old Testament and the prophets. When like Elijah, who was not a priest, whom God would raise up to correct something that was that was wrong amongst the priesthood, you know, but they weren't doing what they were supposed to. So God raises up this prophetic um, man who has a successor, but then essentially there are no successors after Elisha, at least not a direct one. And then by correlation, most of the sons of the prophets are f- the schools through which the prophet, false prophets came in Israel. So you, you've got to be mindful of that, that when God raises up some prophetic corrective, a person who's a prophetic correction to the established church, they get maybe two, three generations. That's how long the Spirit's doing that, because he's creating a movement. He's not creating a different church. And this is one of the things that you've got to be mindful of in the way that some not all, in the way that some of the, the neo-charismatic groupings have understood the fivefold ministry to be the government of Jesus. And if you're not in the fivefold ministry, you're outside of the kingdom and you're missing God's work. That kind of idea is antithetical to everything that's happened since the ascension. And I, and I reference that on purpose because the ascension is what's appealed to is when he gave those gifts. How does then, and this is the, the, the question after that and what you guys jump in here after i get done with this one if you want to um what does the early church say about those five ministry gifts then because it does the church does talk about these things so in the d decay and i am of the opinion um that the d decay looks like didache like did d-i-d-a-c-h-e didache but it's d decay or didache didache d decay meaning the teaching the teaching of the 12 apostles it's lengthy it's written, I think, before the fall of 70 AD, and I think it's the expanded version of the letter that they released from Jerusalem in Acts 15. I think it's really, 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 really early. And there's a couple of reasons that I think that. Some scholars want to date it to like 130 AD, but I think that's far too late. I think it's much earlier because in it you have prescriptions. So bishops should do this. Deacons should do this. You should pray this way. You should baptize this way. You should pray this prayer when you're celebrating the Eucharist. And um, those kinds of things are in it. One of the, a couple other things it has are warnings against false apostles and false prophets. Specifically, if they come and they stay with you more than three days, they're false. If they come with you and the prophet says, in the, come to live with you, and the, and the prophet says by the spirit to give him money or to give him a meal, they're false. So you've got these lists of ways to identify false apostles and prophets and the acknowledgement that they're still present, right? So in one of the places where it describes how to celebrate the Eucharist, it says, say these words, whoever's presiding over the, 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 the table should say these words, unless there's a prophet amongst you and let him give thanks as he will. Meaning the DDK is acknowledging that there are these utterances, the spirit's going to move through these people that's particular for the need that you have. So the DDK talks about apostles and prophets. You have, from the time of Ignatius on out, whenever someone's mentioning an apostle, they're either talking about the 12 and saying they're not like them, like Ignatius does, or it's a description of a particular bishop who is going as a pioneer missionary. So Patrick is called the apostle to the Irish because he was Brit. He was British. Um, Methodist, Methodius and Cyril brothers are called apostles. So you have those who are called apostles who are bishops and they're pioneer missionaries. Boniface, apostles of the Germans. So this is all through Christian history. There are people that are called 
prophets or they're, they're known for their prophetic gifting. Chrysostom is one of them. His prophetic preaching and the way that he, he, in the, the golden mouth, I mean, silver tongue, the way that he preached, and then the particular phenomena that would happen while he was preaching. Like even there's one account where he's talking about God's impending judgment coming because of their, their sinfulness, and thunder comes rolling in over the city, and there's no storm. That's almost happened to you before here. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got that. You've got, so you have those qualities, and you've got evangelism, people sharing the gospel with their neighbors all over the place. But there's no such thing as stadium evangelism like we have today, unless you're dying as a martyr. That's, yeah, that's the only that's way what you got to say. Yeah, it's the only way you got to cry. So the whole dynamic is different. And there's, there's one church, and you would never go in and start another church while, when the church is already there. And that factors into classic Anglican practice in church planting. In America, one of the things that's become difficult is we, we understand the church through the lens of congregationalism. The Congregationalists are very happy about that. But if you understand the church through the lens of congregationalism, then you think that the local gathering of two or three people constitutes a church. And scripturally, that's not true. Wherever two or three are gathered together, you know, the Lord promises to be there, but he de- that's not what a church is. A church is something much more definitive than a, than a Bible study and a prayer meeting, right? So there's a lot more we could delve into that. And I'm not denigrating the fivefold ministry. Because every Christian that's baptized, everyone who's baptized is part of the body of Christ. And everyone who is baptized has a charism from the Holy Spirit. And the majority, like, you know, 98% of the church that is baptized are not in holy orders. And each one of those persons has a charism of the Spirit. And many of them have what you would call in the charismatic world, prophetic or evangelistic graces. There's no gift of evangelism. There's the function of evangelism. But they have these graces where they're encouragers or they're exhorters or they, they, they have the ability to anticipate what's coming next and they can share that and people can make plans for it. You know? so you, you ha- and and the, the, the apostolic side of you know, your personal apostolate where you're engaged in missionary activities, but you're not a, a bishop, priest, or a deacon. Because the episcopacy, bishop, priest, and deacon are the one apostolic ministry composed of three orders. And all of that is what Jesus gave the apostles when he breathed on them. So he creates the ministry and then gives the ministry, the the new covenant ministry, gives that ministry particular powers and authorities. He doesn't give the body. So you have two, you have two different things that are happening here. And do you have bishops, priests, and deacons who are, who have charisms of those five? Yeah. And realistically they need to. Because their offices require that they be engaged in them. So, you know, the bishops are, are the purveyors of uh, the, the carrying the apostolic authority. They're supposed to do the work of an evangelist. That's what Paul tells Timothy. They're supposed to give themselves to public teaching and preaching, you know, and they're supposed to be hearing what the Holy Spirit says that in latter times many will rise with false doctrine. So they're supposed to be engaged in that prophetic capacity of hearing the Spirit so they can preach the word effectively. So all of those graces need to be present in the bishops, the priests, and the deacons. That's what you're seeing in the book of Acts. The schism schism nature of so much of what's happening in contemporary church life is creating divisions where there shouldn't be. So, I mean, can you reconcile them? Depending upon what people mean by the fivefold ministry, it's not so much a reconciliation as it's a recognition that if someone's in holy orders, those graces are already present. 
does God raise up a whole entire different, entirely different organization that's composed of different people that are to work antithetically to what he's already established? No, he doesn't do that. Because he even commands Paul to go submit to the apostles in Jerusalem in Galatians 2. So you've got the interplay of the Holy Spirit working to make the church one. So anybody who says that they're a prophet or they're an evangelist, and they go out and they create a church structure that's supposed to be, a, that is opposed, not supposed to be, but is opposed to what he's already done, is missing the point. And that, that's why I mentioned what I did about classic Anglican practice of missions and, and church planting, especially in like the Orthodox world. Uh, this was the case in North Africa that the Anglicans were there with the Orthodox churches for several decades back in the 1800s, I believe, and realized that there were large portions of the populations that weren't hearing the gospel because of millennium-old divisions because of the violence of Islam's takeover in the 600s and then crusades and all this kind of stuff. So the, the Anglicans then spoke to the Orthodox leadership essentially to get their blessing to go start churches, and they gave it. And so you see a very different paradigm there. And that's, that is how it is supposed to be amongst those churches who say we share the same orders, but we're of a different province, as opposed to my church and your church and 15 churches in town all claiming to be the, the church. And, and they get, this gets into other issues of ecumenism. And that's a, that would take us a long time. But I think that's something that, that, those paradigms, right, and reflecting on those two things, this the fivefold ministry and the three-tiered order, I know for me, was one of the catalysts of study and prayer 15 years ago. I did a lot of study on the fivefold ministry and trying to figure out where that was in Christian history and realizing, one, that it wasn't, and two, that there were these bishops, priests, and deacons, and then three, I wasn't in that. And so while when the Lord called me into the Anglican tradition— he didn't, he didn't do it because I had a theological conviction on those points. I already had that. He did it through what I call other convincing proofs, as Luke says. But then watching how these things unfold in other ways. So if, if you ask me, do I believe in a five- or fourfold ministry? Sure. Holy Spirit does it all the time. But is that antithetical to the established orders? No. It's supposed to be like a hand in a glove. And if you know that God's called you to be, you know— um, You've got apostolic graces. You've got this entrepreneurial thing where you're raising up churches and you're raising up leaders and you're independent. Why haven't you gone to the Orthodox or to, to Rome or to the Anglicans and said, hey, let's work on doing all of this together and I will contribute the graces God's given me to you because I'm supposed to submit to, to this like Paul did. And then you give me the right hand of fellowship and you start to build one visible church. Why build multiple, uh, why, why build competi- competing things? And, th- and here's what we do. We say, oh, we're not really in competition. Yeah, you are. Yeah, right. you are. Because if there's one visible church in town, a whole lot of things change. Anyway. I think two things uh, come to mind when I, when I think about this. One, I'd like to be called Apostle Alex, if that's okay. possible. I don't know if you guys can make that happen. Uh, uh, only on your business cards. <laughs> right. <laughs> on my business card. No, I'm, I'm obviously kidding. Get this printed. Her. I got gotcha. You got a guy? Mr. Print, yeah. <laughs> no, but two, I, I think that it really comes with people just are dying for authority. For me, I think that's what I've what I've noticed, the experience that I've had, that people are saying, well, I carry this gift, I carry this gift, I carry this gift, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to have authority and people are going to listen to me because I have that influence. Right. And I see a lot of people, I recently had a friend, uh, a guy that I know on Facebook, um, he became a bishop 
I, I wouldn't name him. Oh, I'm not. Okay. I, I, he, <laughs> I'm not. He became a, a bishop, and, I, and I'm, going, I'm doing air quotes, a bishop. He's part of a, um, a fellowship, and he said, you know, a bunch of other people got ordained. Um, I, I'm doing air quotes again for ordained. He was a, he was a pastor, and he got ordained as a, as a bishop. And I, it's obviously used as a different term than what we understand it as. And it's just like all this stuff, the fivefold ministry, the fourfold ministry, the words that people are using. It means something different. Even the word ministry means something different. In the New Testament, what does what is the what? There's uh, two Greek words that are often translated as ministry. One is diakonia, where we get the word deacon, and the other is liturgio, where we get the word liturgy. liturgy. Right. How many people, when they use the word minister, understand they're talking about their role of service and how their role of service is built around the liturgy of God's people? That's what the ministry is. The ministry is not. I have a place of of authority. Right. If that's the belief, you could tell the person hasn't even begun to understand the diaconate, which is why all priests have to, everybody's got to be a deacon first in, in the historic communion. It seems to me uh, a lot of the the fivefold comes down to function. Like you could very much so explain it as function. Yeah. Um, I think the only one that's hard to describe with function because of the understood, I guess the implied authority is apostle. And that's where I think it gets a little tricky to explain the fivefold as simply being practical and saying this is function. Right. Well, Unless you explain how I've heard it, when people who just look at it as function, they usually just explain an apostle is pretty much an entrepreneur, but for Jesus. Yeah, I've heard that too. I've heard that too. I've been in meetings with church, uh, charismatics, independent charismatics. This is probably 17, 18 years ago. I got invited to go to one of their meetings because they had, a, had an apostle coming in from South Africa. And I was like, cool, because I believe that there's apostolic gifts and stuff, right? So I, I go and, and I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm listening to this guy talk and, and give words of wisdom and counsel and nothing overly flamboyant about him. And as I'm sitting there, I'm realizing a number of things. One of them is that I'm in a group. Now, I was in a denomination at the time, happily, by the way. So I wasn't there because I was like scoping somewhere to leave. I was just had been invited to something, so I was there. And I'm watching all of these independent charismatics listen to what this guy's saying. And I'm thinking, if you guys were in a or denomination, just any denomination, you would have an overseer who'd be telling you exactly the same thing. And it just so happens that when he prays, it looks like God answers his prayers a little faster, right? So, I mean, that was, that was kind of, that was the, 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 uh, that's a little bit reductionistic, but that's the vibe from the whole meeting. I'm not denigrating what they were doing. I was just saying there's a lack of understanding. And in that lack of understanding, because of either the inexperience or the, the misrepresentation of what the church has always done, people pull away and then they go create something else that becomes a competition. Whereas if they would just take the time to really slow down, and listen to the Holy Spirit, and look at the wisdom of the church, we wouldn't get caught up in, in these other things that are often more destructive than they are helpful. And that's, that. I mean, I know that sounds hard, but, you know, I remember in the mid, mid-2000s, mid early to mid-2000s, a lot of giant, oftentimes, giant, larger Pentecostal churches leaving their denominations to go establish apostolic networks. And basically what that meant was, Here's, here, here's the, the, the boots on the ground, what that meant was. Our church is more important than the denomination that we're in, 
and we finance and support more missionaries and ministries, et cetera, et cetera, through our church than our local denomination does. So we're going to stop sending money to you and then use that money to fund our own things. And sometimes they'd get into fights with their denomination, and other times they would just buy their way out, and that's what they would go do. Uh, I mean, Swaggart said that back in the 80s. He was talking about how his ministry was spending more money to fund missionaries than the entire Assemblies of God missions program was at the time. So, you know, and then you, the, he ended up with his own set of problems or something else. But this is, those are the kinds of things that feed into the schismatic nature. And that those things are unnecessary schism. Schism is always sin. It's always because of sin. But those right there are unnecessary schisms. They, they don't need to be that way. And it goes into what you're saying, Alex. It's hubris. And like I, I've been preaching here for a few years, if someone is a prophet, okay. Hey, that's great. I'm glad the Lord has made you a prophet. That means everything you say is is now to be scrutinized. Everything you prophesy and the way that you conduct yourself and express your opinions need to be scrutinized because you're claiming a level of authority that is very, 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 very high. So even the way that you conduct your private and personal life is under scrutiny because it already is that way for bishops and priests and deacons because that has to get evaluated before they ever get ordained and set into position. And if you're going to claim some sort of charismatic gifting of the spirit that has exalted you to that kind of level and you're not willing to be, to be scrutinized, I already know that you're either immature at best or false. And that's something we talked about last night with the youth Adam, Adam was teaching and uh, that's that's really what I've been thinking about as we're doing this. That wait, wait, Adam's not ordained. So are you saying that there's a charism of teaching for people who are not in the ordained ministry, but because they're part of the body of Christ? I don't want to claim that for Adam because I heard his <laughs> teaching, but <laughs> yeah, obviously, you know, we can teach, we can, you know, we can exhort, we get that. I got you. But the point was talking about gifts. We were talking about gifts, and we're talking about Joseph. I'm talking about the immaturity of gifts. Which Joseph? Uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've always liked Donnie Osmond, not really. Gotcha. Um, but we were talking about gifts and how that when people are immature in their gifts, they're going to rush to do things. Talking about his dreams, telling his family his dreams. And, and I think that's very ap- applicable to what we're talking about. There's people that, okay, well, the Lord, I know the Lord's speaking to me. I have this gut feeling. I have something in me to say, okay. This is the Lord. So we're going to, there's a moment in, in, of silence in a church and we're going to shout it out. I mean, I've, you know, I've been a part of many services where it's like that and they're flat wrong. <laughs> they're flat wrong. I've, I've been a lot of places where people are flat wrong or people with their best intentions are giving me a word of knowledge that they've received from the Lord. The Lord told me this and I'm like, and they're completely off base, completely like, Bro, I think he was talking to the person next to me. Like that, I think that was for them, you know. <laughs> so, learning, I think, talking about the 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 fivefold and learning about the functionality of these gifts. I th- I think, like you're saying, is we need to develop a maturity in that. And I think that's what we're trying to do here at the church: developing maturity in our gifts, because obviously, the Lord has given us all gifts. We're all part of the body. We're not all hands. We're not all feet. You know, we're all different parts. And that's the, one of the teachings that you always give us, Father Darrell, is that if you're not in, in church, if you're not here on a Sunday, then you're, you are robbing the body of your gift. So we acknowledge that there's gifts. We sure. know that. Yeah. That's not, but having maturity in what you're doing is what's important. The fivefold ministry as a superstructure that exists away from a three tiered order doesn't exist in scripture. Right. 
and it doesn't exist in church history. And if somebody says, yes, well, the Bible talks about evangelists in the book of Acts, and those evangelists happen to be deacons, and they were deacons first. Right. And it can go the other way around for that matter. That's not the point. But the point is that they were in, they had an office. Well, what about those who are not in the historic succession and God, the Holy Spirit, raises them up? Good. Praise the Lord. That's, that, that's sort of like, do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Why don't I just confess to God? Like, those aren't opposites. Right. Yes, confess to God. And when you confess to a priest, you're not confessing to a priest. You're confessing in front of the priest. As if, like, you don't, for those uh, Anglicans who pray, who invoke the saints, you don't pray to the saints. You're praying with the saints. Triumphant. So there's, there's, there's categories here where things are, are pitted against each other, and they're not supposed to be. So if someone is moved upon by the Holy Spirit, and they notice that when they pray for people, they tend to get better. Why would you want, just go do it. Like be, be, you know, pray for people. What would you looking for? I mean, this is something that Hippolytus writes in his, his treatise on the apostolic tradition. And he says, if someone has a gift of healing, let them go ahead and use it because the spirit has signified he wants to do it by giving them the gift. Like there's not, this isn't rocket science. And so we create antithesis here and there isn't supposed to be. The fivefold ministry as a superstructure against the three-tiered order is not in scripture and it's not in tradition, the modern innovation, and it will die. And when I say it will die, what I mean is those graces and charisms will continue to exist in the church, but the superstructures that are being created to facilitate them will not exist in 120 years. Or the people who are propping them up right now, those organizations will fall by the wayside or they'll redefine themselves. And you'll have another group of people who come up with them because that's, I mean, Montanism and Gnosticism does this all the time. Right. It's it's the cyclical pattern of heresy. And I'm not identifying this as heretical in the same way as Arianism or something, but it is feeding into schism in a way that it ought not to. Because how many people do you know who are prophets who immediately demonstrate a grace to submit to people who are not prophetic? They don't. I can't go to that church because that pastor doesn't have prophetic gifts. Hold on. That's exactly what you need. Right. You do need someone who can affirm you in your gifts, but you need also someone to, to say to you, I don't think that's the Lord. And a lot of times that's a slap in the face to people. Right. Which is what they need. Right. Right. And Or take it to the person who's an evangelist, but their method of evangelism is essentially aggressive Bible thumping. Like, no, 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 no. Hold on. Scale that back. That desire to go and share Christ is good and right. But the way that you're doing this is not winning anyone. You're doing a disservice to the Lord. And we can do this with any of the, a teaching gift. Somebody has the ability, they, they got a passion to teach the Bible, but then they open it up and they don't explain it correctly. Like it's really bad. You know, never give them a platform. I, I told somebody a long time ago, this years ago, I said, you know, one of the problems that ran into the healing evangelists that, that, that ran into in the middle, the problems they ran into was these guys could pray for the sick and you'd watch massive miracles take place. Just wonderful recorded. I mean, but this stuff, there's no argument about it. It really happened. But then they would start teaching things that were off the wall. And so people would come along and say, see, they're false teachers. They should never, they're, they're, and that's a false miracle. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. I think what's happened is the church, especially that segment of the church, in its immaturity and its inability to discern, gave someone with a gift of healing the wrong microphone. Let them pray the prayers of healing, but don't let them teach the doctrine of the church. And by the same token, if you know someone has a powerful teaching gift and, and in their teaching mysteries are opened up for them, well, that doesn't mean the Lord has anointed them 
to be the person to pray for you about your, your broken heart. Go see a pastor for that. Go see somebody whom God's given counseling graces to. So these things aren't supposed to be antithetical, but they're presented that way. I think and even the question shows that. Like my, our bishop is in the apostolic succession. So do we believe in the apostolic ministry? Yes, because the episcopacy is it. The episcopacy is the succession of the apostles and those to whom they delegate that various authorities like priests and deacons share in those graces and then in the midst of a church where every member is anointed by the Holy Spirit with specific tasks. Yeah, and I, I kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. And that's where I think a lot of the confusion, because it's pretty easy to see four out of the five, like happening congruently with with the episcopacy and like you can see it like it's i think you just hit on it a little bit more i don't know if you want to go into that a little bit more because we've kind of talked about all of them except for apostleship we've talked about how some define it a little bit um can that coexist uh with the idea of bishops priests and deacons or is it just an extension of that ministry you mean the way apostles used by the fivefold ministry if that's congruent if that is or i mean even um Maybe shining some light on that a little bit, so saying, "Oh well, okay." You, you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what would would be if if their definition it can't be seen congruent with um, bishops, priests, and deacons? Yeah. Then what would be the proper definition or biblical interpretation? So it, it it does make sense because we're not doing something contrary to scripture. Let's start with what the scripture says the apostolic ministry is, and then we can talk about subsidiarities off that. I think that, that'll help. When the Lord selects, so in the Gospels, he calls his disciples, all four of them. We see him calling disciples. After a season of having the disciples, he goes up on a mountain for the night, and the next morning calls 12 to be apostles. So there's the, a body being gathered, and from within that body, he calls those who are going to lead the body. Apostle, apostolos, means to be sent, to be sent on behalf of another, and then to be sent on behalf of another with the authority for the task to which you've been given. So, sent on behalf of the other with the authority of the sender. The apostles, the twelve, are in the book of Revelation called the apostles of the Lamb, meaning they share a particular eyewitness ministry to what Jesus did from the time of his baptism to the time of his resurrection and ascension. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, verses 11 through 26. Because Peter, referring back to the Psalms, says there has to be someone else who can take his bishopric or his apostolate, who, his office of episcopacy. All of those terms are in the Greek. He says, who, who's going to take this, this ministry, this office? And so they look at the parameters, and then through lots, they believe the Lord has call, calls Matthias. The Lord calls Matthias to take this role of, of, of an eyewitness. Because in John 15, 26, and 27, he says to the, to the apostles, you are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. And we see the paradigm of the apostolic testimony, the apostolic preaching, and then the, the witness of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So the, the college, the, the apostolic college, the 12 of them, that number is completed. The Holy Spirit comes, and then Peter proclaims the gospel, and 3,000 are baptized. This is the beginning of the church. That's the paradigm of apostolic ministry. Now, we see the 12 are given a specific mission. 
and extensive details about that in Matthew chapter 10. But Jesus tells them not to go to the Gentiles, just to Israel. When you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, the commission now to the 12 isn't just to Israel, but to all the nations. Go pontata ethne, go make disciples of all the nations. So what you guys were doing in chapter 10, now you guys go do among the world, right? In John's gospel, the apostles are not just heralds. They're not just preachers with authority over demons, disease, and death. They are now ministers of the new covenant with priestly powers to forgive sin. So much so that he tells them, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whoever sins you do not forgive, they're not forgiven or retain, they're not retained. He says something comparable in Matthew 16, 18 to Peter when he says, I tell you that you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's a reference to the keys of the kingdom. In Matthew 18, 18, he expands that authority to the whole college of apostles and the use of the keys is a throwback, or a throwback. It's a reference to the uh, to Isaiah when the steward of the city was given the keys of the city, so David's steward could open and door open and shut the doors of the city for commerce. Well, the language gets picked up by the rabbis before the New Testament, the Pharisees, and it's used for leading Israel. So when Jesus gives the keys to the apostles, he's saying the ability to legislate and govern the church is given to you. You determine who can be in the community. You determine who's expelled from the community. And what you're determining within that community is based upon what's done in heaven. That's what he's giving the apostles. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians 5 when he calls for the man to be excommunicated. He does it again in 2 Corinthians 2 when he calls for the man to be reconciled. And it's in this uh, 2 Corinthians 2 that he says, um, to restore this guy who sinned. And Paul says, he stands uh, in the presence of Christ in making his decision. Now, the word presence there in Greek is prosopon. And prosopon, at the time of the New Testament, had two meanings. One, which was the usage primarily before the New Testament, meant uh, face, like somebody's physical face. So often you'll read in the, Old Te- in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. It's prosopon. So before your, 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 your face. The way it's used, again, another use for the term in the New Testament, and then becomes the dominant usage after, especially amongst the theologians of the church when they're talking about the, the Trinity. Prosopon means person. So the church teaches and has taught that the apostles stand because of the, what Paul says here, the apostles stand in persona Christi Capitus. They stand in the person of Christ the head. They stand as those who are the immediate representatives of Jesus on the earth. That's what the apostles are. Now, I'm using Paul here because Paul is an apostle, but he's not like the 12. So in the New Testament, you have 27 different people who are called apostles. And when amongst those 27, they break into essentially three categories, the 12, those who are sent by the Holy Spirit, who have authority comparable to the 12, but subservient to them in their testimony. That would be Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14.4 and 14.14. They're called apostles by Luke because of what happens in Acts 13 when they're sent out from the church of Antioch by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, while they were liturgizing the Lord and fasting, set apart to me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. They're called apostles. 
and there's some others. And you have another group of those who are called apostles. And these are these this term is those apostles of the churches, meaning they're delegates and representatives of, of churches themselves who go out with authority. As I've already mentioned, the apostles take a measure of the spirit that's upon them that Jesus gave them, and they delegate, they give, they impart impositionum uh, impositionum manus apostolorum, I believe, through the imposition of apostolic hands onto the people who are making deacons. Uh, we see that in Acts 6, and Luke is echoing Numbers 11 with the calling of the 70, and how they receive the Spirit, and they prophesy one time with the exception of Eldad and Medad, who are outside in the camp, and they prophesy once. There are seven who are consecrated through the laying on of hands to become deacons, to receive a share of the Spirit on the apostles, and Stephen and Philip do not prophesy one time, they go on because of a new and better covenant to prophesy and do miracles, right, throughout one to be martyred and the other to go on and, and raise up four daughters who are prophetesses. So you have the, the apostles sharing a measure of their authority to make deacons, and then we see them doing the same thing to make priests or elders in Acts 13 and other passages in the book of Acts, and then to the New Testament, Timothy and Titus. So the apostolic ministry is a direct command of Jesus that is the New Testament priesthood that is focused, the, the locus for it, the, the center of gravity for that ministry is the Eucharist. And everything from baptism to bring people into the community to the, to the pronouncing of absolution or the, or the not giving it is the shepherding of that community. And that authority Jesus gave to the apostles and he didn't give it to the church. He didn't give it to the church. Congregationalism is not in the scripture. Independent churches is not in the scripture. He gave that power to the apostles, and the apostles did not give that authority to their texts that they wrote. They gave it to their successors, and they told their successors to preach and to teach from the texts that they wrote. That's an important nuance that's very, very needed. It's a needed emphasis today. Jesus, the apostles gave, Jesus gave his authority to the apostles, and the apostles gave it to their successors. So Timothy is supposed to do everything that Paul did, but Timothy's focus is Ephesus. He doesn't go to all the Gentiles. Titus is in Crete, and we could go on and on through other particular representatives. That's the apostolic ministry in the New Testament. That's what the apostolic ministry still is today. The schism that exists in the church a thousand years ago between the East and the West, we start to run into major problems. Because how do you have two bishops essentially in the same geographic place. Then you jump forward another 500 years with the Protestant Reformation, and now you don't have just a, a schism, but you've got a shattering into a 1,000 or 10,000 different groups. They can fall under larger umbrellas theologically, but they, they, they shatter into so many groups. How do you have an apostolic ministry, right? Well, then you, you come into our era and the past 100 years and the rising up of these folks who are in the body of Christ because they've been baptized, who do love the Lord. The Lord is speaking to them. And because of the way that the church is so busted up, I, I have no, no problem at all believing God's raising up apostles and prophets and evangelists from within the body. But once they understand that they're within the body, they have to make conscious efforts to fully unite the church as much as they can. God didn't give them influence for them to create a separate tribe within Israel. That's not what he did. He, you know, that's not the idea. And, and, and let me, let me conclude my, the, the, the explanation this way. When the northern tribes were split from Israel in the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah restored the Passover. 
and he cleansed the temple and he purified the priests and he called the northern tribes to come back to reconcile to celebrate the Passover and they said no so we have to we as those who are in that succession need to be as as open-handed as we can in a gospel sense to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is always at work and he's always causing people to come to Jesus and all of us come to Jesus in a broken way and we're still broken after we've come to Jesus and even as Archbishop Michael Ramsey said the Anglican communion is broken just the way Jesus's body was broken on the cross I mean so we're not we're not this is not like hey we are God's answer that's not that's not what's happening but when you recognize that brokenness you use everything you can to reconcile all those who will to be it. And for those who are outside of the apostolic succession, whom the Holy Spirit has raised up for any variety of reasons, when they perceive these things, how do you reconcile what you're doing with what the Holy Spirit's already been doing unless you know the Lord raised you up to have you do something and then for it to cease to exist? And I don't know anybody who wants the work that they're doing to cease to exist. So come under the aegis of the apostolic succession and know that that's what God has, that's what he gave in Jerusalem when he breathed on them Easter Sunday. And that ascension, when he gives out the five, those other five ministry gifts, if you will, is not something that's opposed to what he did at Easter. There's an interdependency there. I don't know if that's what you're looking for or not. Because the the, the, the contemporary use of apostle is not that. No, it's not. not. That was the explanation. Like, how does that, fit in um and really is the modern definition of it proper the mo- so, no the modern definition is revisionistic and it's reductionistic and they don't know that it is like that's the thing like people who they don't know that it's because they've done some word studies and they say well apostle comes from apostolos which means sent one which is a translation of the hebrew sheliak and the, the greeks used it for their naval colony leaders so apostles are those who colonize on the world the kingdom of heaven through their strong preaching and breakthrough anointing, and they raise up churches and, and leaders after them. That's great. Why aren't you part of the historic church? Like, did the Lord raise you up to do something that was different? And if you say, yes, he raised me up to do something that was different, why aren't you in connection with what God's already been doing? See, the Holy Spirit isn't schizophrenic. He doesn't create multiple strands like that. He creates one tapestry, right? In that tapestry, you have different colored threads, and we have to keep that in mind. So the contemporary use of apostle doesn't capture the fullness of what it's supposed to. And oftentimes, it really depends. It really, really depends upon the subset. There are those who use the title as an honorary title. There are those who use it because the person's a missionary, whether that's a missionary to another country or what's popular now, they're a missionary to economic strata. So I hope that helps people, uh, and I hope they hear us saying, yes, there is a fivefold or a fourfold ministry, but that's supposed to be, I mean, biblically and historically, that's been within the church, and the church has always been under the shepherding presence of bishops, priests, and deacons, and the schismed nature of things is not good, and let's be, let's be catalysts for uniting the church the way that she is spiritually by baptism. So let's, let's do that. Um, if God is calling people into these particular charisms, you know, and they, they want to operate, I mean, operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but figure out how you unite with the rest of the church. The church didn't divide yesterday. It didn't divide 10 years ago. It divided a long time ago into these different groupings. 
and these different groupings or denominations have their own set of traditions at this point. And so reconciliation or the coming together of them isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to take its own time as well. So that we have to give ourselves a bit of breathing room as we're used that way of the Lord to bring things back together. So I hope that that process helps with that. And to remember that, like we said with minister, we use the same words, but we're not talking about the same thing. And, and I, that we have to know what the words mean, what does Scripture say, and how has the church understood that since the Scripture was written. And um, I think that idea was good. Well, I think that answers our questions very, very thoroughly and hopefully effectively. Hope and so. even answered some questions that weren't asked. Yeah, that's my favorite. That tends to happen a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> so always, as always, uh, send us in your questions that you have. No, don't send. Well, they can, but we're not doing another one of these until like so the end of August. We're taking uh, about a month break. Yeah. About a month break. Please send us questions, though. We want we right. like the fanfare. It makes us feel good. So. Caleb Ridgeway at Appalachian Anglican. I can't spell Appalachian very good. I can't spell Ascension. <laughs> How do you spell Appalachian? A-P-P-M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I. No, that's Mississippi. C-H-I-A. I spell it wrong too. I'll be honest. Like there, I'm not. I like numbers. I'm a numbers guy. Words confuse me. Do you want me to try to spell it? A P P L A C H I A. I can spell it, but if we spell and it out, it's not. People won't write it down. It's not one of those words that like makes it any easier. It's like well, hold up, say that again. I kind of just need a uh, spell check. So uh, spell check it and uh, send your questions in. Caleb Ridgeway at Appalachian Anglican, and we'll we'll get a list. We're going to do a whole for those who are listening at this point. We're going to do a whole list of different topics in the fall, starting late summer into the fall. If you have a topic that we have not addressed or we did talk about it and you would like us to expand on it some more, let us know. Let us know. Again, uh, thank you for listening to Appalachian Anglican. I'm Alex. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. See you later. (laughs) 